Whether you're taking a rip down the lease road in your jacked-up truck or flying first class to Houston, Texas, it's time to sit back and relax for another exciting episode of Oil & Gas Onshore. This episode is brought to you by Tendeka, a global specialist in advanced completions and production solutions for the oil and gas industry. And now, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome your host, Justin Gauthier. Welcome to this week's episode. We're here at the Canon with Shane Schur, Regional Sales Manager at MS Directional. Shane, how's your week going so far, buddy? It's going well. Yeah? You know, typical Houston uh, week. You don't know when it's going to rain, but outside of that, works good. Life's good. Dude, it's been coming down. Actually, I was telling guys in my office, so I've moved here in 2011, and the mo- the year that I moved here, it was a drought. So it was like, like I think it was like 180-something days of sunshine and just hot. And coming from Canada, I was pumped, right? I was like, no rain, no snow outside tanning like this is perfect weather for me and uh pool season all the time yeah it was like nothing but pool parties and just yeah outdoors no issues and then you know throughout the the summers it's been a little bit rainy here and there well now that i have two kids that are terribly afraid of thunder it's been thundering like every third night out in katie yeah the amount of rain we've gotten is crazy and so yeah i've been sleeping on my daughter's bedroom floor in her room quite a bit this summer and so i'm hoping this is an anomaly because it's driving me insane man. <laughs> but this isn't normal is it five years ago i would have said no but okay. it seems like the last three years have just been a lot wetter than previous because i grew up on lake conroe up in montgomery right yeah yeah and i remember the droughts and the lake being down 10 12 15 feet right oh so wow the last three years it's you know been flood after flood 500 year flood yeah it's been nuts the hardest part for me is balancing you know obviously the difficult times people have been through with people trying to learn how to drive through the rain yeah (laughs) right i mean a sprinkler goes off on a car in houston and they they whip around and they almost hit you so yeah houston driving gets even worse when it's raining which is not fun yeah no it's crazy i've seen people drive better on ice and snow than i have seen people drive when it's raining out here but Hey, who am I to say? Yeah, we people, don't we don't adjust. In Houston, people do not adjust. They do right? not adjust for traffic, weather. No. No. <laughs> they just know one way to drive and it's aggressive and yeah. you go from there. Right. Yeah. So you grew up on Lake Conroe? Are you, yeah, do up you in Montgomery. ski or snowboard or wakeboard or anything? No. I mean, we didn't live on the lake. We okay. lived in a subdivision that was on the lake. Grew up skiing on friends' boats and stuff like that. It got into wakeboarding, you know, end of high school, into college. We'd go out with friends. I wouldn't. Per- you know, particularly to say I'm good at it. Sure. Any stretch, I can get up. Yeah, yeah. That's about it. Nice. Yeah. No, that's a hell of a time. I grew up in British Columbia where it's freshwater lakes. And so I grew up on the water. I love every bit of it. And it's tough because I went to Lake Houston, I think one time a few years ago, and I thought it would be nice, you know, freshwater lake, but it was so murky, man. I was just like, I felt like I was in the, like a, like a swamp or not a swamp, but like, it was just, it just didn't feel clean. Yeah. And I was like, ugh, I don't know about this, but I did it anyway. So it was whatever. <laughs> That's our lakes. Oh, actually, funny you say that. We had a conversation. I was at a wedding last weekend, and one of the, the guests there, they were from Hawaii, this married couple. And the wife had been in Hawaii her whole life. And he had born and raised in Iowa, went down there for military. Yeah. And the first time she visited, he took her to a lake. And she was like, nope. Not getting in it. Not getting you know, in like, Yeah, if I can't, I can't see, the, see bottom. the bottom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I think the, the freshwater lakes in Canada, I mean, you can't necessarily see the bottom, but it's not like swimming in just brown slop, which, again, I mean, if you're from here, it's probably fine, but it's it's weird when you get used to something and you come in here, it's like, oh, you think lakes are lakes, but they definitely differ. Lake Conroe, you just kind of grew up knowing if something rubbed against your foot, you just yeah. considered it a stick. <laughs> where does all that, where does the water from Lake Conroe come from? Do you know? No, not off the top of my head. I mean, it's damned. It's man-made. So, oh, it's man-made. Yeah, yeah, okay, it's, makes sense. 
Yeah. So it's like all the like, the crap runoff from the rest of the country just like accumulates yeah. down yeah. here. Yeah. <laughs> Possibly. Yeah. I know they empty it into what one of the other larger lakes. I think like Houston, whenever they need it. Okay. So, yeah. Too funny. But the bulkheads are the funny part about Lake Conroe is if you want to go out and wakeboard, you got to get out early. Right. Go out early because if not, it's choppy as hell just from the whole, so the whole lake being pretty much bulk you know bulkheads yeah yeah so the waves have nowhere to dissipate oh okay and then it gets busy as heck you know in yeah. the summertime so <laughs> yeah everyone calls first, first world there. problems yeah, yeah exactly yeah. no kidding so you're from montgomery so do you know like jordan Banj, mike christensen chris yeah. and those yeah, boys so, that work with us yeah I, I went shoot probably from second grade till graduation with jordan Binge. okay and christensen was a few years older than us but yeah all those montgomery boys i mean we all as we got into oil and gas, because I had no idea I was going to end up in oil and gas, right? Okay. I've run into more and more Montgomery guys, you know, the Blake Mokes and, and those fellows. Yeah. And at the time, growing up in Montgomery, I don't think I recognized how connected oil and gas in Houston was to that area up there. Mm-hmm. I mean, you knew a couple people's parents who drove to Houston every day, but you didn't really dive in when you're in fifth or sixth grade. Sure. Right. And so going into college, I had never thought about oil and gas never thought hey that's a future for me uh-huh. i just wanted to graduate yeah find a job get it over with yeah. and start making some money yeah. yeah oh i didn't want to get college over with but i wanted to get school over with. yeah yeah <laughs> you still wanted to yeah. live the college I wanted, life yeah, i wanted to live the college life yeah yeah that's hilarious so i heard i mean it may be a rumor i don't know but i heard you were the smartest kid coming out of montgomery and someone was telling me that you were taking gifted and talented classes all the way back in grade three is that true yeah, I mean, here's the deal. I think I just know how to play the system. Okay. Uh, so if that's if that's considered the smartest person, yeah. Then yeah, but we were born and raised right outside Montgomery, grew up in Montgomery, right? And there were four of us. I'm probably the fourth smartest out of my own family. So okay. I definitely wouldn't. Hence why you're selling directional tools. Yeah, exactly. Because yeah. <laughs> I was like, what can I find that I don't know anything about and still maybe be successful at selling it? Directional yeah. tools. Nice. That's why I was an MWD hand because – you know, you're definitely not the smartest person on the rig or on location. And people remind you of that op- you know, often. <laughs> but if you're okay with that mentality, you can play the system and get things done and yeah. get to know a lot of good people. So, no, I was not the smartest person in Montgomery. <laughs> uh, quite a few bits smarter than me. But I, I, I did enjoy playing the system and, and figuring everything out through life. And, yeah. and Montgomery was a great place to grow up. I mean, a lot of loyal people. It was a great community for our family personally who owned a family business there. Nice. And what kind so of business was it? My dad had an insurance agency. Oh, nice. And so my little brother runs that now. It's been in the family since... Yeah, 95, 96. Okay. What's it called? Put a plug in there. Sure Insurance Agency. Sure Insurance. Yeah, it's okay. a farmer's insurance branch. But Cool. And so, like I said, four of us grew up in Montgomery. Went through the school system. My mom was a teacher for about 30 years. My dad was on the school board. So we got to know a lot of good friends and family and always tried to support the community. And the love and support they showed back was, you know, full, you know, rewarded. And it was great. Yeah. So it was a great community to grow up in. Um, it grew a lot. I think when I graduated, I think we had 300 in our class, our senior mm-hmm. class, but that was probably twice as much as my older brother, who was four years older than me. No and then, and now it's now they split the high school, right? So it's a growing community up there. Yeah. No, I know those guys that I work with that live up there. They love it, and I don't think they'd ever move, even if you know, even if the right opportunity came along. They're they're pretty tied into to yeah. Montgomery, the Montgomery Mafia, I like to call them. So uh, you went to A and M, right? Correct. Okay, yes. so you know I need to start tallying up my guests by college. I bet if I, you know, A and M has everyone else beat because 
I've probably interviewed, well, now up to about 30 people, and I would say the majority are from A&M, which you're rocking the ring, right? Is yep. that true? Yeah, yeah. I'm one of those guys. Yeah, no, that's good, man. You got to claim your stake. <laughs> well, I like it, that. It, it depends on wh- whose office you're walking into, right? <laughs> sure, yeah. That's what I joke about with guys because no other college can walk into a you know an engineer or driller manager's office and either it's immediate like, oh, yes, like you went to A&M, awesome, great, or it's yeah. like, oh, you went to A&M, oh. Yeah, like no one's like, oh, you went to Sam Houston. Oh, no one does that. Right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like either it's just it. a and yeah. yeah, yeah, because you get the guys that like, like, and I've heard this. Now you're you're probably slightly biased, but I heard the A and M fans are like real aggressive towards anyone else that comes into play. Is that true? Man, no, I mean, I think there's some, I think there's some fans that are over the top. Yeah, and, and that puts a stigma on some. Don't get me wrong, we're passionate, but to me, I kind of consider us. I mean. We're, we're not aggressive mostly because we don't win it's like <laughs> yeah it's like we're not rubbing victories in people's faces most of the time maybe that's maybe because yeah, they're pissed off that they're not winning well i think it's more we're just very passionate about our school and yeah. when we find joy in you know finishing nine and three people are like oh whoop de do you know you know and it's like well for us that's good that's a big you know? deal man yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah if it's you're like, over 50 50 you ought to be pretty proud of it i would think it's not bad yeah and, and honestly i'd say this to a lot of people I loved A&M. I, I didn't plan on going there originally. I loved A&M and found joy in it because of the friends that I made and the experiences that I had. And I think that can be said about pretty much any college that you go to, right? Hell yeah. And so you spend enough time there and create enough memories, you're going to be passionate about that school and and you hmm. know all that. It's My fiance has often said, you know, would you pick me or the Aggies? Like, clearly, <laughs> so what do you Clearly you. Yeah. I'm like, clearly okay. you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, so you, you know, yeah, okay. Uh, good. Don't get me wrong. If I can get seven weeks out of the year to go watch them play football and tailgate and enjoy, you know, hanging out with friends and, and reminiscing, yeah. I want to do that. Right. Um, but it's her all day, right? Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't take away the passion that I have for A&M, and she's still going to give me crap about it. But. Right. Well, you, like you said, you got to know how to play the game, and it sounds like you know how to play the husband game already. Just tell them what they want to hear, and, <laughs> you know, life will be okay, right? Yeah. So, well, congratulations on the engagement, man. Thanks, man. When's Aug- the wedding? August 17th. Nice. Yeah. You getting married in Montgomery? We actually are. No way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was a <laughs> nice. that was an accident. If she ends up listening to this, I'm going to take crap for that. But oh boy, <laughs> man, we just there was a new venue up there that cut us a good deal because they were just opening it up, Jennings Trace, and cool. We looked at some places in Houston, and and they just either weren't big enough or a little pricey for what we were getting. So yeah, we're pretty mm-hmm. excited. If I see Jimmy Buffett anytime soon, I'm going to have some words Uh-oh. because we were supposed to stay at La Toretta. Yeah, and then the you know the parrot company or whatever bought it out, so they're redoing that whole resort. Oh, okay, I so, didn't know that. Yeah, they, they canceled all of our reservations. No way. Which luckily we we're we we're a little further out than a lot of people, so now we're end up staying in the woodlands and yeah, tra- transporting people out there. But well, yeah. we'll try and get Jimmy Buffett to listen to this. Maybe he can throw you a bone. Yeah, yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, God, I don't even know if he has. Do. I don't even know if he has a part in that company. <laughs> but I can tell you this, based off of Holly's, you know how. What a curveball it was. We will not be playing any Jimmy Buffett songs. No. <laughs> F Jimmy Buffett. Yeah. I hear you. So are you a Johnny football fan then coming out of A&M? Man, he was exciting to watch. And again, I don't I don't find joy or sadness in what 18 to 22-year-olds do. I'm sure. guessing until I have one of my own. But, you know, he was exciting to watch. And, and because of him, actually, and the way he played that season – I was on a rig with a directional driller who had been seen as kind of a difficult person to work with. Okay. And but him and I just hit it off. We got, you know, we got along great. And it was Johnny's freshman year. 
And I tell you that because I was barely able to make it home. You know, I was working a pretty heavy rotation. Yeah. And this DD hated sports, but I asked him, I was like, hey, do you mind if I watch this freshman quarterback we got, like the game's on this afternoon? And I was in a skid unit actually underneath the rig floor. Okay. So I had to come back over to the trailer just in between every now and then to catch some survey. Like I go catch some surveys, watch, and then when I could come make my lunch and watch a little bit of football and then head back out to my little box. Yeah. And I asked him, I was like, hey, do you mind if while I'm in here watching some of the game? He was like, yeah, yeah, sure, whatever. You know, he, he was like, Didn't I'm not, care yeah, he's like, not going to watch it. You know, I'm watching my computer. But I turned it on while I'm making lunch, and I'm telling him about Johnny. Yeah. I'm like, man, I watched this kid's first game. He seems like he's going to be exciting to watch. And as soon as I told him he was from Kerrville, this DD just, he lost it. He was like, oh, I know, oh wait, what's his name? Like, oh, I, I know his family. Like, he was from that area. Right? No kidding. So, man, from then on, the rest of the season, that DD was like, hey, are they on this weekend? Like, nice. how's our boy doing? Yeah. And, and it helped us, like, randomly enough, it helped us bond. And No shit. Yeah, him and I would chat about it. I brought him some A&M shirts back. Like, yeah. Back to watch one of the games. And he actually pitched me to get into sales to our VP of operations. No kidding. And so... Dude, blessing of God, you know, like right? this guy just found me not as annoying as a lot of other DDs found me. Right? <laughs> yeah. And he kind of took me under his wing and I was interviewing for a survey sales job out of Conroe and that was going to place me in Midland. And I asked this DD, I said, hey, Billy, do you think this is a good opportunity? Like you always told me I should get into sales. What do you think? And he was like, yeah, take it. You, you need to go take that interview. So I took the interview and was ready to accept that survey job. And unbeknownst to me, he had called the VP of the company of the operations side and Damn. said, hey, this kid needs to sell directional. He was like, switch him under me, I'll train him directional, and then you need to put him in directional sales. And so, man, I mean, because of that and the blessing of that vice president at the time, like was able to train directional for six months in a couple different areas and work with a couple different guys and wow. just got thrown into the mix in Houston. Dude, yeah. that's crazy. So thanks to Johnny Football, that he he yeah, he was yeah, a matchmaker for you. Yeah, accidentally. Yeah, um, you no know, kidding. Don't, don't tell him. I think his head's big enough. Right. Yeah. No kidding. <laughs> yeah, but wow, it's just funny how that stuff works out, right? It is. It little things like that. You find some common ground, and the stars align. This next thing you know, it you know you're off you yeah. know, selling tools in in Houston, which is crazy. Actually, talking about how big his head is now. A buddy of mine, Ross Hayes, he was with Ultima and now he's down at Paloma. He went to A and M. And he was, they were playing intramural basketball and I guess Johnny football, cause he grew up playing ball too. Yeah. And so, but he chose the football life and he said he was, he was decent at basketball, but he said the craziest thing he'd ever seen is cause he's like maybe what, five ten five eleven yeah, Like I don't think he's dribbling the ball and all of a sudden he jumps and like just dunks it like on like two or three guys. And everyone was like, Oh my God, like who is this guy? And he said at the time he was like kind of quiet. He just did his own thing. Like he wasn't like flamboyant or you know, like just like all about, you know, whatever. So yeah, he said that's the like the memory of him playing basketball with him before he blew up it was like this white kid all of a sudden comes in just like dunking on dudes. <laughs> yeah, and he was yeah. like, Who is this athlete? Like this guy's yeah. insane. And then next thing you know, he's just like doing the impossible on the football man, yeah. th- on the field. So but yeah, I have a huge appreciation for football. And most people that go to A and M do like Johnny football, but I always ask the people who didn't because they always have, you know, different points oh, of views. Yeah. But it is funny, man. So I wish him the best. I think, you know, hopefully he can grow up and get things on the right track. Yeah, but absolutely. Either way, before we get going in the weeds here, I just wanted to take a quick break. If you'd like to support the show, please subscribe and do me a huge favor to take a few minutes and leave a review on whatever platform you're listening to. Any feedback is welcome and appreciated, good or bad. 
Also, if you feel like you have a great story or an idea for a show or any questions, please hit me up on LinkedIn. I have folks hitting me up on LinkedIn all the time now. I love the support, criticism, anything. I like the engagement. Anyway, so what was life like before getting into the oil field? I know you mentioned you grew up sort of on the lake. You know, you went to college, but I mean, growing up, did you, I mean, obviously you didn't see yourself getting in the oil field, but what, what, what did you do spending most of your time growing up? So I played a lot of basketball and golf. Nice. And went to A&M, got heavily involved in a lot of student activities. And, cool. And like what? Freshman leadership organizations. I did the fish camp route. Okay. Uh, what is that? The fish camp counselor. So fish camp every year at A&M, you know, the freshmen come in and get brain brainwashed. Basically, that's the way <laughs> people act like that. Yeah. But really, it was just a good opportunity to just meet, you know, 26 more counselors. And then you meet, you have about 150 freshmen in this in this camp, individually in your camp. And it's just to kind of break them, you know, break the ice, say, hey, this is college life. You go over traditions, you go over like A&M, the campus, how like how everything kind of operates and really just trying to create a family orientation for these kids that come from schools of 100 people. Right. And yeah. They're about to step foot on a campus of 60,000. So yeah, it's crazy. Heavily involved in those. I spent a lot of my college career being a counselor and director and and then, you know, chair for different organizations and for you, man. Met, met a ton of great people. Right. And then, of course, maybe two of, you know, the hundreds that I met get into oil and gas. Right. <laughs> yeah. So zero, almost zero help when I got out of the field. Oh, sales. But, Go you know, figure. Hey? But I got a great group of friends, very loyal, some of the best people that would drop everything just to help you out. So I don't think you could ask for much more. And honestly, that's kind of how I fell into oil and gas. So the plan was graduate with a marketing degree. And I'm sitting there looking at these companies come in and recruit to A&M in the marketing track. And you've got the PepsiCo's and the HEBs and all this. And I was like, man, I just, I don't know what I want to do. Right. Yeah. None of this stuff seems like my niche. I really wanted to get into sales. And at the time it seemed more like product placement, market research and all that through the marketing track. And so I was going to go sell insurance with my dad. About that time, insurance was kind of taking a dip and our family friend of ours was actually one of the high ups at MS uh, energy services at the time. And, and we were at my little sister's basketball game and him and my dad were pretty much arguing, Hey, who's going to, you take him. No, no, you take him. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. Who's going to be responsible for me for the next 10 years. And it turned out I got an opportunity to interview for an MWD role up in Fort Worth and went up there and, and met with a couple guys and, and just kind of said, Hey, you know what? This, this seems like a fun path. Let's let's chase it down. Let's give it an opportunity and see where it goes. Yeah. And so out of nowhere, joined MS, went out into the field in 2010, 2011, right at the beginning of 2011, and started running MWD. And man, I mean, I was I was 22, 23, so I didn't have a wife, didn't have kids, so I, I found a great appreciation for the family people that were out there because mm-hmm. you know you're not working a rotation at the time. So for me, I told the guys, hey, send me wherever and whenever, and I just pretty much tried to soak it up long as i could good for you man yeah it was a blast and and man i met a bunch of great people out there i got to watch how ms you know uh, treated its people and the loyalty and and basically like hey it's a it's a family here and now that's not to say that everybody gets everything they want because yeah well i guess you can't do that but it was great opportunity for me and the the leadership that i had the dds that i worked around always very helpful and again like i talked about Earlier, the MWD guys aren't exactly seen as you know the smartest people on location, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, other than the mud guys. Yeah, other than, yeah, and you yeah, know, we're, we're the yeah, bottom of the barrel too, yeah. bro. I get it. You know, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we could pretty much sit in a room and just blame each other back and forth, yeah. and, and <laughs> no one would care. Like they'd be like, "Yeah, now that y'all figured it out, yeah, it's one of you two. Y'all, 
come, t- come <laughs> so tell us true. which yeah come tell us which one it was when you're done yeah but i recognize pretty quick that when you're going to different locations and you're constantly moving and, and i worked everywhere for ms you you meet a lot of different personalities right and the first thing on location as a mug guy or in, as an mwd hand is pretty much knowing where you're at on the totem pole mm-hmm. but figuring out how to get your job done and and still get along with these guys that you know, may or may not respect you when you walk on location, but if you can develop some sort of bond and yeah, and you do your job, right? I mean, if you take care of your job, that goes a long way with a lot of people in the field. Yeah. And and I, as I've gotten into sales and I've spent some time in this side of the career, it's the parallels, you know? I mean, I'm not going to be the smartest person in the room with a guy with a PE or a lot of these drilling managers or engineers, but they don't need me to be, right? I mean, they're the ones making those decisions, they need me to be present and be loyal and make sure MS directional is taking care of, you know, what their goals are. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, bringing the technical knowledge from our operations teams to that. Yeah. Right. So I can sit there and be made fun of because I'm not the one out there running the motor. You know, I'm not the one designing the well, like the drilling engineer. I'm, I'm a go between more or less. Yeah. And I recognize that as an MW hand, Hey man, take care of your job. You know, it was not a thankless job. You know, we joke about it sometimes. I'm sure my guys do too. It's like, oh, it's a thankless job. You know, if you do your job, no one's like, hey, great. But as soon as something happens, it's yep. like, oh, it's all your fault, right? Mm-hmm. But I recognize pretty quick that it's inevitable. Things are going to break. Things are going to go wrong. It's really more about making sure that you set yourself up the best you can, right? And mm-hmm. that, that comes from the shop as well. You know, what company you're working for, making sure that the QAQC processes and all that are in place to set yourself up the best you can because it's oil and gas. We're going to figure out a way to tear shit up. Yeah. Let's let's face it. Yep. And then how you manage when things go wrong. And with DDs, it was the same way. You know, if you were up front with guys that had been in the industry for 20 years and you told them, hey, this is what happened or this is what I think happened and we're honest and try to hide stuff, they were much more likely to say, all right, man, let's work through it. What can we do next time? How do we change that? How do we fix that? And I've seen that a lot today in oil and gas. I mean, you're going to tear stuff up. On the directional side, that's one of our biggest hangups, right? Mm-hmm. Is trying to develop a tool that can stick up to the performance and the metrics that people want or are after. And and so the best we can do is design it the best we can and, and then step up to the plate and say, hey, what are you guys after? This is what we saw. What did y'all see? Here's what we can move forward with and kind of go from there. But understanding that, you know, just like in life, the loyalty you show your customers and, you, you know, the loyalty you show your friends is going to be rewarded with a little bit of grace, you know, you expect yeah. and a little bit of understanding. And so for me, luckily, I jumped out with MS and was blessed with a lot of good relationships, a lot of good friendships, a lot of good mentors. And that's been rewarded through my career as I've grown within MS and gone from MWD to regional sales manager. It's been, I can still go to the same guys. I can still call that DD and say, hey man, this is this is what we're seeing over here. What are your thoughts? You know, you've been yep. in the industry for 30 years. And those relationships have been key, right? Absolutely. And, and it was very much a parallel to how I grew up, watching my dad run an insurance business where you can't affect a hurricane. You can't, you know, change certain things that are going to happen. I mean, people have insurance for accidents, right? Mm-hmm. And it's really just how you manage, you know, expectations and, and things that do go wrong. And kind of growing up in that environment and seeing that the more loyal you are to the customers, regardless of, you know, what's going on, that loyalty is going to be rewarded back to you. Yeah. And, and so working for MS, it was just a natural fit. It just seemed like our guys were 
very loyal to the customers. That's not to say we always had exactly what they wanted. That's not to say even today we're going to supply every brand new piece of technology and everything they want, but the loyalty is still there, right? And so that's all I can ask for from a personal standpoint. I mean, as a strong Christian and as a guy that tries to live pretty morally, it's I want to work around people that share those those same codes of ethics, right? Mm-hmm. And when looking at customers and looking at operators now, it's it's where's the loyalty? You know, it's everyone's driven by cash flow. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so a lot of loyalty is the money right now, and that's just the industry. Yeah. So you like to think that if you can find some good guys to work around, you know, you kind of want to stick stick it out with them. But at the same time, you, you want to work harder. Mm-hmm. And so for us, I think. We just want to work as hard as we can for our operators and then kind of see where it all shakes out because I think 2019 has been kind of weird. Yeah, no, it has been. So backing up a little bit, what would you say is your biggest takeaway from actually having that field experience? Because you get a lot of folks and now and that, you know, they get into sales roles because, you know, sort of their, their character, their personality, their get along, but then they have to bring guys in that have that technical experience or that field experience. But for yourself, what would you say the biggest takeaway is from actually having field experience how do you apply that now to to selling? For me personally, I think it's more just knowing a little bit about a lot, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, being able to hold a conversation, being able to kind of understand what's being asked of me on the forefront yeah. is, is a big resource. And I think that went a long way. I was, I was a little bit of an experiment coming out of the field. And so, you know, grace of God, MS gave me some time to get my feet under me and kind of figure out the sell side on directional. But nowadays it's, you know, having that field experience is almost a, you know, kind of a badge of honor to mm-hmm. some degree. I mean, for sure, in my opinion, I bet if you asked every drilling engineer, if they could have another six months of field experience and still be home with their family. Right. Yeah. But everybody could always use more. And as it's become more technical and more automated and, and there's less, you know, there's really less need or desire to have guys out there in certain roles. Yeah. I think it's become a little harder to find guys that have that. And so for me, it's kind of a badge. It's like, Hey, I spent four years out there. I've seen this happen. I've seen this happen. And my favorite phrase in the oil and gas industry is we've never seen that before. (laughs) Yeah. And it is. I mean, it's comical because I worked with guys for 30 years and something would happen and you'd hear 30 year hand say, Holy shit. I've never seen that. I've never seen that before. Yeah. (laughs) And it's like, well, hell, if you've never seen it, I certainly haven't seen it. You know, I'm two years in there's, Cause I don't know what to do right now. Yeah. And so it's, you can always have more field experience for me personally, being able to kind of understand what's being asked of me in certain meetings and certain questions. And, and when we're dealing with issues, having a, a slight understanding. And I, again, I wouldn't pretend to be the smartest person in the room, but having a slight understanding of how, how it all clicks together mm-hmm. is my greatest resource. Because like you said, I, I feel like I've got a personality that can, you know, be a salesman-ish and, and BS and hang out and do all that. Mm-hmm. But to a certain extent, these guys that we're dealing with, they want to know that we have an idea of what the hell is going on out there. Because yeah. if not, they're going to want the guy in the room that does. For sure. And so having that, you know, experience on the MWD side, the experience on the directional side and understanding, you know, what it takes to slide and, and what these guys are watching on the ROP and the differential and all that and mm-hmm. how to get the most out of the different tools that we're using yeah, goes a long way, right? But again, the team that I've got in place on the operation side are the guys that I call first and foremost. I mean, if I can get one of them in the room, that saves me from having to talk. And <laughs> if I'm not talking, a drilling manager is probably a little happier because <laughs> he doesn't want to hear me talk any more than he already does. Yeah. 
So personally, it's just it's really just the experience. And, yeah. And having a little bit of knowledge on the different things that could go wrong and, and how to kind of bypass those or work with them or, or, or get over the humps. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that, it's a credibility thing. I know for myself, having that field experience, whether, you know, from the rigs and then being a mud engineer, when you say something, people trust you a little bit more because they know you've done it. So they make the assumption like, oh, he's must have had his hands on it and has seen it and then done it versus like, you know, hey, this is what I think supposed to happen. So, so I can certainly identify with you there. You mentioned a little bit about technology. What's exciting in the directional world? And not necessarily has to be related to MS, but is there anything out there like, like we talk a little bit about like automation. Is there such thing as folks drilling wells, you know, from Houston, like steering wells from, from their office and stuff like that? Like I've heard of it, but do you know any, is there anything kind of new and exciting in the directional world that that's going on? There's a lot of automation on the directional side. I don't want to say it's in like the beginning stages. However, we've drilled some wells using some rig automation. Okay. So basically an auto driller, if you will, that is, it's putting in the slide, it's figuring out what parameters to use. And the DD is hands off, you know, sitting there allowing those auto drillers to, you know, to do work. Wow. Do I think that's where the industry is going? Yes. The directional business is constantly pushing towards that. Patterson's drive, our parent company is towards automation and trying to get as many you know, people off location and create a safer environment as possible. Sure. MS has a real-time 24-7 MWD center. We call GoTech out of Patterson's office. And cool. we're working towards automation there to try to get MWD hands off location. Wow. How quickly that's going to happen, I don't know. And I also don't know how, how quickly I, you know, I feel like it's necessary to have the MWD hands off. I'm on a personal side, having hands on location, I think you'll find you'll find certain company men that they want those guys there. Yeah. Because as soon as something goes wrong, they're not, you know, there's a person physically on location ready to deal with it, right? Yeah. And then you've got other operators and other, you know, people that are going to feel differently about that. I think the end game is to create as much automation as possible just because that's where technology is headed. Now we have to be smart about it. And I've worked with guys that drilled for 30 years. I've worked with guys that drilled for two years that, in my opinion, could outdrill a computer all day. But that's my personal opinion. Now, there's real-time op centers already where you've got DDs watching multiple rigs for some of these operators in Houston, mm-hmm. in an office, calling the driller on location and telling them, hey, this is what I'm seeing. You know, the driller on the actual rig, not a directional driller, just the driller. Go put this in. Go do this. You know, adjust these parameters. Wow. And they can kind of automate that system. The efficiencies from that, I haven't seen them. We haven't been directly involved in some of that. Do I think there are some? Yes. Do I think there's some inefficiencies? Probably. But in any technology, I think you got to work that out. Yeah. And and I think Patterson and MS's goal is to work together as a rig company, a directional company, to kind of spear point, hey, this is the automation that we need to focus on now, but this is the automation that we'd like to have in 10, 15 years. Right. And, and kind of balancing that. And that, from a directional standpoint, probably the hardest part of our job is figuring out where the industry is going. Right. I mean, like I cannot sit here and tell you exactly what we're going to need in three months, nonetheless, five years. Right. Right. So just try to take as much knowledge from our customers and, and the desires and needs that they have and balance that with what our, our rig guys on the Patterson side are saying, what the frat guys are hearing. And, and then obviously other sales guys and other engineers you know, Yeah. try to soak it all up and make the best decision that you can because on the directional side, you could chase a motor tomorrow and, and go get one that's going to make company X happy. 
and they'll run it into the ground and then company YZ will want it. But investing that CapEx, is that going to make companies A through G happy six months from now, right? Mm -hmm. Are they going to have a desire or need for that motor? And so balancing, trying to work for as many people as possible, trying to work for operators that you deem as a good partnership and a good loyalty with projecting what the industry is going to do is probably the biggest hiccup for us or, you know, hang up. I don't want to say hiccup. It's, it's just a constant, you know, adjustment. And right. You just kind of get used to it. And I bless the people that have been in this industry for 30 years and seen the ups and downs because yeah. within the eight that I've been here, it's been crazy. I mean, it really has. I saw more personal success in sales in the downturn. Okay, well, let's talk about yeah. that. Yeah, how how did the downturn affect you, and how were you able to climb out of it? Because obviously, you're sitting here with MS today, and so what, what kind of challenges did you face through the downturn, and, and did it create innovation and more efficiencies? Did it drive anything for you guys as a company, or you know, how did you guys how did you guys approach that? Yeah, for me, I, I don't think I was ready. Right, so I'd come out of the field in 2013, 2014, and about the time I started getting things going is when it hit. Oh no. And, but at the same time, MS, like I touched on earlier, had been loyal to me and allowed me to build a book of business, if you will, and, and develop some good relationships and, and develop trust. And so for me, I think MS saw a lot of success, which we grew from 3% market share to 9% through the downturn. You know, coming out of the downturn, we, we ended up getting up to about 9% market share, 80 rigs. Holy and a, a lot of good, man. yeah, a lot of that was driven by the personnel and the loyalty that we stuck to from the top down, right? I mean, we tried tried to hold off on layoffs as long as we could. Everybody took a little bit of a pay cut per the industry, right? But we tried to retain the shop hands, tried to retain the good field hands. We retained some great leadership, and through that, you know, I think our customers saw that loyalty to our people and said, "Hey, I know if you know this well is the most important well to us." And we're one of your 65 rigs at the time, but we need it to be the most important well to you, right? And the individual teams at MS were great at doing that. And we continue, that's our big talking point. I mean, when I talk to customers, it's, it's like, look, we might not have every toy that you want, right? And I don't think any directional company right now does, but we're gonna work our butts off to make sure that you know, you feel like you're the most important customer to us because you are. I mean, in that, in that moment, me as a sales guy, I've, I've stuck my name out, you know, and, and I've put MS on my back and said, hey, you need to use us. You need to run our tools. And, and that friendship and the loyalty that I've created over the 24 months leading up to that, to that drilling engineer who he's got a boss and he's got to go stick his neck out for that decision and say, hey, I think MS is the, the route we need to take. That's rewarded sometimes. And sometimes it's not. And that's okay, right? I mean, we can't win them all. Yeah. But MS's success in the downturn, my personal success in the downturn was built on relationships and built on a lot of trust that we've always operated above board. We've always been there saying, hey, this is what happened. This is where we went wrong or this is what we're seeing and being willing to sit there and, and adjust on the fly and say, hey, whatever we got to do to make things right or, you know, hey, we've worked together for five years. And so if, if I'm telling you that this is what's happening, you got to trust me. And, and that trust is usually mutual. And those are the greatest partnerships we have. And I think you saw a lot of that in the downturn. The deeper the relationships, the deeper the trust, the more likely you were to have success, right? And so for me, I luckily had built a lot of good relationships with a lot of very smart people that you know had my back and had MS's back. 
and they supported us, you know, right? They could have gone and at the time, a lot of people had tools on the shelf. Mm-hmm. And so to have our customers support us in those downturn and the downturn went a long way. And they, I mean, they're what drove our growth, right? And so it's it's built on the loyalty back to them. And, and I, I mean, I hate to use the phrase trusted partnership because there's a certain drilling manager that loves throwing it out there. Uh, <laughs> but really, I mean, but really that's what they are, right? Yeah. I mean, as corporate as that trusted partnership phrase sounds, it's what they are. It's built on trust. It's built on loyalty. And on the professional side, that's why MS saw success. And then on the personal side, I think I saw the most success during the downturn and coming out of it and and got to where I was because I just worked. You know, I wanted to be there for everybody that I had met mm-hmm. two years before because you're watching people get let go. You're watching people struggle. And you just want to make sure that, like, you're working your butt off so that if you get a phone call, those guys know, like, Hey, I know Shane was out drinking last night, but he answered my phone at 5 a.m., right? You yeah. Know, and, and I needed him to. And so just being there for people is is what drove my, you know, inner like inner drive, I guess, was was that. Yeah. And it, and it equaled success at the time. And and I think today still, you know, blessed to have the upper management that I do. They've been very supportive. They've watched me make mistakes and they've still had my back. And and I think that 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 upper management kind of mentality builds a lot of trust within you right mm-hmm. as an employee i mean yep. you want to go out there and make these guys proud and so the leeway i was given and the trust that i was given built that hey i'm going to make you guys proud and and i'm going to go out and bust ass and, and i'll make sure like at the end of the day i might not get the sell and we might not be you know the best the biggest directional company out there the best at this or the best at that but they're going to say hey shane and ms they were there you know they, they've got our back. They, they stepped up. They did exactly what we needed them to do. And, and understanding that you're still going to make mistakes. You're still not going to drill the perfect well every time out. Yeah. But I think that's what, that's what drove me and it created some success. And then I, there were plenty of failures. <laughs> right. But you got to fail in order to move forward. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and that's just like the field, right? The only way to learn in the field is to see something go wrong. I mean, if you're, if you're perfect at what you're doing, you're not going to have to adjust. You're, if, if the well goes without a, like any kind of issue, you're going to come out of there and be like, well, everything I did was perfect. So until something goes wrong, you're not going to learn. Right. Yep. And, and I think that's just the oil field. And figuring that out over the last eight years has been fun, challenging. You yeah. Know? It's, it's been a blast. I mean, to be completely honest, as frustrating as the industry gets, and I find a lot of joy in just the challenges. Because at the end of the day, it's work. Mm-hmm. And it's the, the home life is the most important part, you know, rooted in Christianity. It's, it's God, family, friends, right? Work's not even in there for me. Sure. But means to an ends to some degree. But if you're, if you're finding joy in those other three, it makes the frustrations at work a lot easier. Mostly it, most definitely. Yeah. yeah. I can identify with you hundred percent. Yeah. So what year, how long ago was it that Patterson bought out MS? So th- Patterson bought MS in October 2017. Okay, so kind of like when the downturn started ending, kind of. Yeah, we kind of come out of it. We were we were running full bore. I mean, 80 rigs, nine 10 percent market share, and we were taking on the advantages of being that trusted directional company. And and at the time, I really don't think anyone in the industry realized how much more efficient we were getting at drilling wells. Mm. And, and how much more stuff we were tearing up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so 
So as that second kind of, I guess, price point kind of hit, right? I mean, we all tried to get a little money back, tried to raise <laughs> rates, but yeah. nobody was quick to do that, right? No, I, I find it funny just to touch on that. A lot of customers, you know, they asked for concessions and, and rightfully so. I mean, the pressure was on. And if I had a penny for your even, you know, anything for every time someone said, yeah, don't worry, when we get out of this thing, we'll we'll get you guys back. That's a tough conversation to have. <laughs> so I don't know about you, but it's been hard to get that back. So I feel like we're still in the, the downturn hangover. Yeah. Is what I like to see. Absolutely. And and for us, Patterson came in, buys us, and, and what they expect is, you know, profit. Yeah, that's all they, they haven't done a lot of, you know, gut in the house if you will there's mm-hmm. been some hr changes which are to be expected with a public sure. company right yeah but they've they've instilled a lot of trust in our operations to say hey guys like all we want you to do is be profitable now at the time they asked that i don't think anyone realized how difficult that is in the industry right now right <laughs> no kidding yeah. yeah so i mean it's it's a very normal thing to ask but like you touched on as the price points haven't come back up we're drilling two, three, four days faster than we were three years ago in a Mm -hmm. lot of areas. And we're tearing up more and more high performance tools. Right. right? And so the balance there is just figuring out, all right, I know this 25 to 35 year old drilling engineer who sits next to three or four more of the same, the same, you know, stigma. There's another 25 to 35 year old guy sitting, girl sitting right next to him that they also have a job to do. Mm -hmm. They've got a boss that's pressing them to say, hey, keep costs down. Our upper management wants cash flow or we're going to work off of cash flow. I get it, right? So it's it's hard to go push on people that you consider friends and and good relationships to say, hey, you know, this this little money to you is important to your boss and your upper management. And this little money to us is, you know, 10% of our our profit on this one well. Yeah. And so balancing that and trying to figure out, hey guys, like, what can you do to help us out and still drive the R&D and the technology and the automation and say, hey, we know we're not going to operate at 30, 40, 50% margins like you know 2012. Yeah. And so you just can't do it. We're tearing too much stuff up. The wells are due fast and the price points are lower than they were back then or our day rates are lower than they were back then. But our customers still expect us to drive R&D. Mm-hmm. They still want the premium motors. They still want new technology. They still want us to push that. And so balancing that has been the challenge in 2019, in my opinion, and it's going to continue to be the challenge, but it's, I mean, it's something that just is what it is and it's been fun to watch. And it's a growing experience as a person that again, never looked at oil and gas before, (laughs) you know, 2011. Right. I never, never watched the downturns and I'm sure it was happening all around me. You know, call me naive in high school. It was go play golf and go home, go play golf and go home. (laughs) Nice. Yeah. So speaking of golf, what's your handicap, Shane? It depends. If I'm in a scramble, it's not low enough for everybody that's playing with me. <laughs> uh, I probably I'm, I sit at like an eight, nice. anywhere from a six to eight. Typically, I could I can play at a six. I can play at a two. I can play at a twenty. I nice. Mean, so you're ver- you can play with all with the I best pretty or much, the worst. Hey, I played a lot of golf in my time, and then I gave it up for quite a while. And the consistency that I had is way gone. Gotcha. And so you'll be hard pressed to find me caring about a round unless it's a competitive, like, you know, with a scramble group or a shamble or something that, you know, we buy into. Yeah. But for the most part, golf's fun to me now. I could care less about keeping score. Yeah. Good for you, man. Good shots are fun and bad shots you forget about and open another beer. Nice. Where do you normally play at? Or is Uh, this everywhere? Yeah, everywhere. I don't have 
I've, we've got a corporate membership at a couple different places, but I really just wait for the pickup games and yeah, you know, play wherever anybody can play. Nice. And probably don't play too much in August. Uh, <laughs> a little too, <laughs> a little hot. too hot. The July and August months get a little hot. But. Yeah, yeah. Unless you're out at like six in the morning or six thirty, yeah. it's it's scorching. Do you have any predictions? I mean, we talked a little bit how crazy the industry is right now, but towards the end of the year, man, have you heard any rumors or are people picking up, laying down, or what's your thoughts? I think you see a little bit of both. I know that's kind of a cop-out answer. There's certain programs on some of these larger operators that they're trimming them down, mm-hmm. whether that be cash flow or you know their production numbers are better than they expected because they're drilling wells faster, right? Yeah. And actually seeing some of the benefits of the efficiencies gained in the, the actual drilling programs. But then you've got guys that have been sitting on the first six months of the year getting you know, ramped up and ready to drill, right? And I think that's kind of how it typically goes throughout the year. You've got guys that come out of the gate now that they got money and drill a program. And then you've got guys that get that money approved and wait until Q3, Q4 and drill five, six, seven, eight, ten 10 wells. So I think the generalized answer would be it's, it's slowing down a little bit in terms of the rig count. But that's not to say that guys aren't still poking holes in the ground. I think, I think a lot of that just comes from the efficiency of how quickly we're drilling now. Yeah. And the cash flow of, hey, if we can drill these four and we don't have to pay for two or three rigs or, you know, four or five a month, then let's do it with one or two. Right? Mm-hmm. And, and so I think that's what's kind of hurt us in the sense of a directional company is just trying to balance that. What are they going to do? Yeah. Right? How much inventory do we need to handle 65 to 80 rigs? And are those 65 to 80 rigs going to be running at the end of the year? Right. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's challenging. But I don't think it's any different for any other directional company or, or any of the rig companies and the right. neighbors or any of those guys. So it's, I think we can agree it's an interesting time. 2019 has been fun, but not, not a blast. <laughs> yeah. yeah, still a lot of volatility. Yeah. And it's tough. Like you said, everyone's kind of faced with the same challenge. And it's like, who can strategically you know, manage their inventory and then even have, you know, having like you said guys loyal at the rigs because when things were busy and they still are relatively busy but you know on some in some aspects guys are chasing you know whether it's two or three dollars a day more it's like how do you retain the talent with a diluted talent pool because you know when it was you know we were a couple months ago or even like last quarter it was ramping up pretty good now we've scaled back so on at least on our side we're seeing a lot of the good hands become available but it's it's like managing the people. Like, how do you retain that quality of talent? You know, because you can have the best tools in the shed, but if you don't have the guys on the field that properly run them effectively and cost effectively, then then that's just it's a chain reaction, right? And, yeah. and so you're having to answer to your customer like, why the hell is this happening? And it's you know you have this, you have that, but it's it's the guys at the, in the field, and, and we've touched on how important the field level is. But I have a huge respect for the guys in the field and how much they work. They deserve the world because without them, you know, things would be, we wouldn't be nearly as successful as we are as companies. But as we automate and pull guys off the rig, hopefully we can take that talent and bring it into the office. And because yep. a lot of it's, you know, you get guys in, in the office that are analyzing data, but they don't necessarily know what to look for. Like a lot of those guys who have that rig experience or that field experience, they can identify things before it even happens. Will AI eventually be able to tell us that before they even can? Maybe so, but I just don't think we have the enough data put into the to the machine if you will to make that happen so but again it yeah we we experience it like you said we're all in it together so what what you guys are faced with so is phoenix so is you know every other directional company out there so it's a fun game though i i I mean like you said it's exciting and 
I think 2019 is going to be relatively flat. Hopefully oil doesn't go below 50. But if as an industry, if we can just hang on around, you know, 55 to yeah. 65 and, and not get, you know, put our egos aside and, and respect Wall Street and what they want, I think most companies will do okay. Yeah. So and, and balancing that, right? I mean, understanding it's one thing, balancing it all the way to the field level and showing the respect and loyalty to those guys that, yeah. you know, they do drive the business, right? And we would be nowhere without them. And probably shouldn't say this, but even as a sales manager, you know, I could go work for anybody else, but am I going to take all the rigs that I've gained and garnered with me right off the bat? No. I mean, it's our team. It's our, yep. ops, it's our ops team. It's our tools. It's the field hands that, that really drive that success. Absolutely. And so balancing where the industry wants us to be and the expectations of everybody from a CEO down to a shop hand is the most important thing for me, right? I mean, it's, What's important to a guy? Is it money? Is it time off? Is it, you know, is it family? Is it a specific rig that he used to work on or wants to work on? Is it office life versus rig life? And and figuring those things out for your employees is probably the quickest way to balance what Wall Street wants and, and what we're capable of giving right now at the price points we're at. Yeah, that's and, a good point, you know, man. Is really engaging with those field folks because they I know when I was in the field and I'm similar, similar to like yourself, you know, a phone call, an email of appreciation, like that stuff goes so far and like, Hey, how's your family? How's, you know, Hey, I know it's your kiddo's birthday. Like the little things like that make go a long ways. And if you can build a culture that focuses on, on that family dynamic, those are the ones that typically, you know, sur- survive and, and go to the upper echelons of, of being great companies. So, which it sounds like at MS, you guys have a great culture. Yeah, so I applaud you, your leadership and you guys for that couple last questions before we wrap things up. Nothing to do with the oil field or they might, but do you have any daily habits or routines that help you create a recipe for success in both your personal life and your career? Let's see. Prayer. Nice. And again, a lot of that is patience. And I won't sit here and say I pray every day and, you know, and I'm perfect in it, but who is and, and God bless Holly, my fiance, because she, yeah. she tries to make sure we pray every day, which is great. That's I'm awesome. Reason yeah. I love her, right? But just that's a routine that, you know, if it's one minute, if it's 30 minutes, if it's, it's, if it's diving into the word or if it's, you know, just having a quick conversation with another guy who I know is a strong Christian or the one that's not, it seems to me to create a better day, right? Awesome. And a more patient day. And I think we can agree in, in oil and gas sales right now, you're going to have frustrations, right? And I laugh with my boss sometimes because I told him, it took me 28 years to convince a girl to marry me. Right? Or, you know, <laughs> yeah. 30 years to convince a girl to marry me. I don't know how you expect me to convince a drilling manager to make a million dollar decision in two weeks. Yeah, <laughs> like, no kidding. Give me some time, right? That's funny. So just, you know, praying a little bit every day, just keeping myself in check and, and not getting a big head when I see success and not getting, you know, down on myself when I don't. Right. right. And to me, that was the biggest daily routine that I've, that I watched my dad deal with growing up okay. and the successes and the failures and, and keeping that baseline positive attitude. And so for me, the daily habit that I have is really just like putting myself in check and saying, Hey, it could be worse. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of worse things out there than not landing that rig or than having to deal with that MWD failure. So how do you stay positive? You know, how do you, how do you make lemonade out of it and, and just kind of move forward? And you kind of learn that on the rig too, with the MWD side, because you got a tool down hole at 22,000 feet that you didn't build, you know, <laughs> right. you put it together on the rig, but you didn't build the internals. And then you put it, you put it in the pipe and it was working just fine. And then it drilled for a hundred hours at 320 degrees and it 
shock and vibed all the way to 22,000 feet, then it breaks and you're the jerk. You know? Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, what's wrong with your tool? Why are we tripping? You know, what'd you do? I'm like, yeah. well, I was working when I put it down hole. You know? Right. I was, I mean, you build me a laptop that's capable of doing that. And you realize quickly that like, hey, it's out of your control at a certain point. Yeah. Right. And so I think daily habit wise, that's it. Just understand that a lot of stuff is out of my control. I can work as hard as I can in certain areas and, and I can lean on the guys that I trust and rely on as often as I can. But at a certain point, it's all out of our control to certain to a certain degree. Right. And so whether it's big picture or small picture. Yeah. No, I, I love that answer. So where does that strong level of faith and and mindfulness come from? I mean, is that something that you just kind of like thought of or did your parents sort of teach you this? Like where did that come it from? It was definitely parents. Yeah. Right. My mom was the one that woke us up, drove us to Bible school and, you know, made sure we go to church every day. And my dad supported those decisions and, you know, was a strong Christian as well. But my mom instilled that in us from a very young age. And, and cool. my dad, like I said, I mean, he's, a, he's an insurance agent. So if there's one thing you learned about an insurance agent growing up is that he can't affect the rates, right? I mean, that was kind of what I always applauded about insurance is any work that you had with people was pretty driven by, you know, if they stuck with you for a long time, it was mm -hmm. loyalty. It wasn't, you're the cheapest. Sometimes you were, sometimes you weren't. Yeah. In insurance, you cannot control the price point. Okay. Right? So... You can try to help people out, get them the best deal, shop it around a little bit. But to a certain degree, if you've had 20 accidents, your insurance is going to be higher. Right? right, yeah. So there's nothing you can do about that. And watching my dad lose, you know, good friends as customers and gain, you know, customers that he didn't even know or vice versa, watching him deal with the ups and downs kind of is what built, I think, not only in me, but the other three siblings that I have, a mentality of like, hey, you know, it could be way worse. You know, things are going to happen get over it, move forward, look at where our families come. And I think my mom has done a great job of that as well. We've suffered a lot of loss and been through a lot as, as a family. Mm -hmm. And she was the one that was like, hey, look to God, you know, drove that as, a, as young kids and even as young adults. And so that kind of created the mentality, right? And, and I'll go back to MS. So I lost my dad right about the time we were coming out of the downturn. Okay. Sorry to so, hear, man. Yeah, appreciate that. But he passed away and MS was great. I mean, the bosses that I had were like, take as much time as you, as you need. You know, we'll be here when you're ready to get back to work and, and God bless them for that. But mm -hmm. the things that my dad had instilled in me were like, hey, you know, this is, yeah, it's tough. This is not fair, but there's people dealing with worse things. There's life could be way worse off. So get your butt back out there and make, <laughs> you know, make the best of it. Yeah. And he wanted to see me succeed, my older brother succeed. He works for New Tech Global. Okay. And then my little brother jumped into the insurance business and I'm sure he wanted him to succeed, right? And and we kind of banded together as a family and and just drove through that Christianity and through my dad's, you know, positive attitude to just get up on our feet and go to work, right? Cool. And so I, that's kind of where it started from a young age, dealing with a couple other little things and, and it just kind of grew from there. Right. Well, I'm sure your dad is super proud of you, man. And shout out to your parents. That's fantastic. I, I appreciate that answer. One more before we before we log off here. What's something about you that not many people know about, or do you got any good hidden secrets that you want to unleash to the podcast world, Shane? Oh man. Okay, so I'm easygoing, yeah. very, very easygoing. Been yeah. Told you know I'm I'm a likable person by some, and I'm sure others don't think that. <laughs> but there's I have pet peeves. Okay. Right? But my pet peeves are weird pet peeves. Let's hear them, man. You know, I don't like that we can't figure certain things out in life 
and and create fixes for things, which I know not everything can be fixed immediately, but I compare it. So we put a man on the moon in the sixties, which seems like a technological feat. Right? Yeah. I mean, everyone was pretty big, pretty big fans of it. <laughs> yeah. Pretty happy, right? But we still don't have fingernail clippers that catch the clippings. Yeah. Right? That little <laughs> stuff bothers the crap out of me. Dude, that's so true, man. Foods foods turn colors when you leave them alone for 30 minutes bothers me. Like guacamole and bananas. And I'm like, I just don't trust it. Yeah. It's like, how have we not figured out a way to keep my guacamole good for longer than a day and a half? It's like, <laughs> well, do, was- do you really want it to be good longer than that? Then you're probably eating something that's been like modified genetically. Yeah, or well, like I guess. not... You know, because like back in the day, you think about how we've evolved as humans. Chances are they didn't have guacamole that could last forever. So like we've evolved because of the reason that like real food will actually degrade, man. Yeah, I so guess that's true. Don't let that bug you. Good way to look at it. All right, we'll explain explain where the water and yogurt comes from because my entire life goal now is to become well off enough to where I can hire someone to open the yogurt. And stir it back up before I open the yogurt because oh. it freaks me out that that pool of water just appears out of nowhere. Because when I bought the thing, <laughs> it was I not. It, it wasn't watery. There was yeah. no water in that yogurt when I first opened. It. <laughs> and again, I'm sure there's some scientific reasoning behind it, and and I have zero desire to actually know the answers because they might freak me out or they might make me feel dumb. I think it's just this: it's the fact that like yogurt, somewhat of it's an emulsifier, like it's milk and water and all sorts of yeah. stuff. So I think it's just like like. Oil and water separate. I think it's just like yeah. milk and water separate. Well, maybe. It just grosses me. <laughs> so, so. Well, if anyone if anyone has a great reason as to why that happens, yeah. link send yeah. Shane a LinkedIn yeah. message so you can explain. Because like you can tell, he's just rattling his brain. Like he knows how to drill to twenty five thousand feet, but he can't figure out what the hell the water is doing in the yogurt. So someone please help yeah, him yeah. out. Help me out. <laughs> if you're still listening, if you haven't jumped yeah. off by now, like, <laughs> if anyone's still this listening, crackpot talking about. Oh man, that's like, too funny. That's your big issue in life is yeah. that yogurt settles out and there's water in it. All hey, right, man. <laughs> you must have a low stress level, bro, and I like that. Well, look, now it's time for our sponsor giveaway. Tindeka is giving away a mini portable projector, perfect for home theater, boardroom, office, or pocket video. For a chance to win, click the link in the show notes and we'll announce the lucky winners as they come in. Now some events on deck. Julie, please tell us about some upcoming events. Hey, it's Julie here, and I have a few OGGN announcements before heading into the events on deck. Street team, we are still taking volunteers for our street team. We're only asking for an hour of your time per week in exchange for perks such as free entry to our happy hours, shirts, networking with other young professionals in our group. The group is within Facebook, but you do not have to have a Facebook to join. Just send me an email. The link will be in the show notes and I can get you started. Our happy hours. We are actually moving to quarterly happy hours rather than monthly. So our next Houston happy hour as well as Midland will be in August or September. Be on the lookout for that date. You'll get an invite if you're on the list. If not, you can sign up on the list below. And then we are launching another happy hour in Denver in August. So if you're interested in that one, the link is in the show notes as well to be notified. We don't have a date or details for that yet, but they're coming up. Okay, now on to the events on deck. We have Golf for Good on June 11th, 2019 in Houston, Texas. All proceeds go to help Redeemed Ministries with our long-term recovery program and safe house to help victims of human trafficking become survivors. So mark your calendars and be ready to golf for good with Redeemed and our organizers Global SEM Energy and Red M. 
For more information on how to sponsor or register, just click the link in the show notes. Data-Driven Drilling and Production Conference is June 11th through 12th in Houston, Texas. This is where Silicon Valley meets oil and gas. Register at the link in our show notes below. The Energy and Data Conference is June 17th through 19th in Austin, Texas. This forward-looking conference will include the latest in digital transformation trends as they relate to the energy sectors with topics such as machine learning and data management storage, oil and gas development and drilling production, and more. Link down below. Energy Exposition is June 26th through 27th in Gillette, Wyoming. The Energy Exposition is for those who would like to know more about procedures, technology, safety, environmental practices, and equipment used in the oil and gas industry. And again, the link is in our show notes. Argentina Oil and Gas and Energy Summit 2019 is on July 10th and 11th in Buenos Aires. This summit's actually the first and only official event for the Argentinian oil and gas and energy industries. It will present a unique platform for networking that will bring together existing and future operators in the oil and gas industry in Argentina and Latin America. Next up is the 2019 IPANM annual meeting that Mark, Jake, and Paige will actually be speaking at. This will be July 24th through 26th in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And this year's theme is Addressing Operator Needs in 2019. And next up is Desk and Derek Fort Worth second annual shoot for the future clay shoot. This clay shoot will be on July 26th in Decatur, Texas. And then last but not least, Summer Nape. This is going to be August 21st and 22nd. It's where the deals happen. Thanks, Julie. I also want to mention OKC Fin, Feather, and Fur, which will be happening Friday, October 11, 2019 at Heritage Place, Oklahoma City. I know it's a ways away, but it's relatively new for the Oklahoma region, so show them some love and go onto the AAD website or hit up Courtney Strang with Inwell for more details. Anyone out there in the Houston area interested in playing Oldfield Hockey, come join the Hack and Whack crew for some old-timer hockey. We do it every three weeks at Memorial City Mall Ice Rink. Hit me up on LinkedIn for more details. And look, you don't have to be a pro. This is there's no referees. It's literally just come out, have a few brewskis, and play some puck. Like I've had people ask me how competitive it is. It's not. It's f- totally for fun. So please, if you're in the Houston area and you want to pr- like try to play hockey, please hit me up. Also, if you're in the Katy area and you're looking to get in shape for summer, go to KTX Fit and get a free trial by telling one of the coaches that I sent you. Awesome. Well, look, Shane, thanks again for coming on the show. If people have any questions related to directional tools or, hey, if you got any operators out there looking to you guys, what's the best way to reach out LinkedIn or your guys' website? or Reach reach out LinkedIn, MS Directional or or me personally. Absolutely. I really appreciate you having me on. Yeah. I appreciate the podcast. 
thing. I mean, I listen to a lot of podcasts. This one's quickly becoming a favorite. I hope awesome. I didn't hope I didn't take a negative stance to that for your no your, man for we, your fans. But I no, really appreciate shoot. it. I don't yeah. have any fans, man. I just have people looking to <laughs> get some free information yeah. out of me. But no, you, we had a great conversation. What other podcast do you listen to? Oh man, uh, stuff you should know is oh dude, one of our favorite travel. Po- Holly and I love listening to that. Nice. And I go was, figure. They haven't had a yogurt one on there yet. Oh, I haven't. No, I have. I haven't found it. And then <laughs> nice. man, there's a there's a really good one that I really appreciate it's called school of greatness okay oh i love lewis house man yeah i've listened to that guy for a long time he's great because he yeah he used to play in the nfl right correct yeah school of greatness yeah he's blowing up man he's like i know he does what is it he has he has like some stuff on youtube and he's quickly become a huge influencer but his guest list is insane but the thing i like the most about it is i mean a lot of it's driven into positivity, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you, it's hard to listen to some stories that a lot of people get on there and, and not take a positive touch out of it. I mean, a lot of people go deep into some negative things, but at the end of the day, he's he's driving what drives them, right? So the successes that people have seen, it's awesome. Yeah, it's, no, it's I, 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 I love him too. It's, he's great. So, uh, well, cool. Well, we'll put your link in the show notes, we'll put the website and your LinkedIn. And again, thanks for joining me today. If you want more information, visit oilandgasonshore.com. And that's a wrap. And always remember, when the density's up and the gas is down, open the choke. Let's go to town. Ooh-wee. Tune in next week for another captivating episode of Tendeka's Oil & Gas Onshore Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasglobalnetwork.com. 